0: Hello and welcome to the Economy, Land and Climate podcast. I'm Alistair McEwen, and in this episode I spoke to Wim Carton, Associate Professor from the Centre for Sustainability Studies at Lund University in Sweden. I wanted to talk to him about the politics of carbon offsets and removals and to get his perspective
1: of how they have come about. What do we actually mean with residual emissions? And this is one of the main problems I see in this whole net zero debate, right? Because every single company is making a claim on residual emissions based on their own idea of you know, what is unavoidable or what they can mitigate and what they can't.
0: I began by asking Wim to explain his work at Lund and how he got into it.
1: So I'm a senior lecturer at Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies. I mean, essentially, I've done my PhD in geography. I'm a political ecologist, you could say. I work at the Center for Sustainability Studies here. So you know, environmental studies with a pretty big social science component. And my main interest really is the everything to do with the politics of of climate change mitigation. And I've come into this whole field of carbon removal through... Uh, My PhD, basically, which was a market-based mechanisms where offsets was one part of the PhD. And there I looked into some uh, afforestation projects in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, looking at the kind of local, you know, justice concerns with carbon offsetting. And then obviously, um, you know, this whole thing kind of exploded in terms of, you know, the, the need, the supposed need for removals that came out of, you know, IPCC reports. So I've kind of come into the carbon removal debate from that side. And, and I noticed from talking to others, it's because I mean, a lot of people come into it from the kind of geoengineering debate where, you know, there's also, you know, a lot of interest in solar geoengineering, but I've really come into it from the kind of carbon sequestration uh, side.
0: Can you tell us then your kind of overall view about, well, both removals and offsets,
1: If we start, maybe, because I think it's really important to distinguish the two, uh, actually. Uh, And the reason for that is that, you know, if you look at the whole offsetting debate at the moment, there's a major conflation happening there, especially if you look at corporate pledges, corporate net zero pledges are including a really significant proportion of offsets to, you know, help net zero pledges even out, basically. And a lot of them at the moment, you know, rely on avoided emission offsets. So basically... You know, you buy a credit in another place that supposedly, you know, avoids an emission from happening. And the problem there is that if you really look at the kind of role that offsets can play in a world where everybody has to go to zero, then there is very little actually room for avoided emissions because, you know, obviously everybody has to, you know, go to zero. And if you have an avoided emission offset, then one entity by definition keeps emitting, right? Right. So that's why it's really important to make this distinction between avoidance emission offsets and carbon removal offsets. For the moment, the vast majority of offsets on the market are avoided emission offsets. There are very little actual removal offsets. And the ones that are there are often, you know, the kind of biological carbon sequestration kind of nature-based solutions, you know, afforestation being the most uh, obvious one. And there we have the problem of permanence that comes in, right? So the point being here that offsets are, they become extremely popular again, I would say, you know, we've had a previous wave of carbon, of carbon offsets. And um, it's really concerning, I think, because both the massive interest from companies that are obviously not making even the most basic distinction of what kind of offsets they can use in their the zero commitments, I think creates a real risk that we will see uh, kind of a race to the bottom and uh, the proliferation of of like really low quality offsets with very low environmental integrity and potentially significant social justice concerns.
0: Can you just explain permanence for for people who might not know what permanence is?
1: Yeah absolutely. So I mean one of the main issues that we've seen in the in the carbon offsetting uh, literature for a very long time is this idea that you know if you extract say a ton of carbon in the form of fossil fuels somewhere and you combust it then that CO2 is going to stay in the atmosphere for hundreds and thousands of years, right? As a part of it that kind of reduces very quickly, but then there's a there's a significant portion of it that will stay in the atmosphere for I mean, millennia, basically. So to be able to offset that ton of carbon that you've emitted through extracting fossil fuels on a one per one basis, you need to guarantee that the the offset that you're providing, meaning the carbon that you're removing from the atmosphere, is removed in a permanent way, meaning also for hundreds or thousands of years. And many of the offsets that are being promoted at the the moment can't do that. By definition, you know, the nature-based carbon removal options, afforestation, etc., all of the kind of biogenic carbon removal options all have the risk of reversal, right? I mean, you know, you just need to think of the increased risk of forest fires with climate change itself to realize that this is a, a far more, I mean, there's a risk built in there that you don't have if you sequester something in a geological way. Uh, So that's what permanence is, right? It's that need to guarantee that it will stay there for as long as the fossil fuels would have done if you didn't extract them. And that is really, you know, one of the reasons why in the paper that I've, Written with a few colleagues on equivalence that we say that you know you can't actually use nature-based carbon offsets to offset for fossil fuel emissions. I mean, just scientifically, it doesn't really make sense. That's kind of some of the more detailed problems to do with carbon removal. You wanted to know about the political character of it as well. Maybe I can speak to that. So our critique there is that you know often, these are choices being portrayed as very kind of technocratic ones, right? I mean, especially if you look at the climate science, then, you know, the whole notion of, okay, we need carbon removal and how much carbon removal we need comes out of an economic exercise, basically. It's a cost optimization exercise. We're trying to kind of basically measure different technologies against one another. And then we choose the ones that, that or the, the portfolio that, that has the least total aggregate cost. And that kind of eradicates the different you know, political visions that are being created here by portraying some technologies, some pathways, climate change mitigation pathways, as more desirable or feasible than others. Because as I've said previously, you know, the benefit from a vested interest perspective with carbon removal is that it's uniquely suitable to you know, justifying the prolongation of a kind of very fossil fuel intensive development pathway, if you so choose to uh, go that way. there's a real benefit there for you know everybody who currently has a stake in continuing extracting fossil fuel. So what, what we mean with the political character of is, of it is that you know a choice for large scale removals is also a choice for a certain kind of climate future. It's a choice for benefiting certain actors and not others, right? So, you know, depending on the kind of constellation of technologies you choose, there's different winners and losers, basically. And the winners and losers that we are seeing in the case of a carbon removal intensive pathway are very likely to be the ones that also benefited from, you know, the kind of fossil fuel bonanza that, you know, is still ongoing. And I think these these kind of choices and these kind of implications, I mean, really matter. I mean, they matter in terms of social and climate justice, obviously, who bears the costs and um, who gains the benefits of the climate actions that we choose to pursue? so that's why it's really important to um, I mean really kind of focus on those those questions as well, which is so far at least uh, really not something that we are seeing, unfortunately, in the kind of scientific debate. And can you give any specific examples of
0: where of how these political choices how the politicization of carbon removal is, is actually have, having an impact. I mean, it would be great. It, I, I know that's perhaps difficult, but it's, it would be interesting to have some of the examples given of, of, of that theory in practice.
1: Let me say this. So you have direct air capture as a technology being hyped quite a bit at the moment. Um, it's currently not very prominent in kind of scientific models, but it's probably set to be quite soon. I haven't looked into the current draft of the upcoming IPCC report, but I would be surprised it would be completely absent there. But anyway, so direct air capture is certainly one of the technologies that is being hyped. And the reason for that is that you know, it provides potentially permanent removal if you choose to mineralize it, as uh, some companies are doing. And um, it has the benefit over a technology like BEX in that you know, it doesn't have the same amount of land use requirements and the same amount of trade-offs with land use. Carbon Engineering, which is one of the main startup companies in the U.S., it's a Canadian company, and it's developing a 1 million ton carbon direct air capture plant in the Texas heartland of oil development. And it's partnering with one of the main uh, oil and gas companies there, Oxy. Oxy has this idea of using carbon removal as a way of extracting more oil, basically, through enhanced oil recovery. So that's already... I think one of the, uh, I mean, just the use of of direct air capture to increase enhanced oil recoveries as as an obvious combination of direct air capture being used for invested interest, right? What we're seeing actually is that currently a lot of the interest is in CCUS versions of of direct air capture, right? Where we actually try to find profitable ways of using that carbon uh, that we have captured from the air. Synthetic fuels being one of them, right? Combining it with hydrogen and you get basically something that you can combust in existing cars. But also, I mean, all kinds of feedstocks where you would normally use carbon to make, you know, plastics or, you know, synthetic plastics or even drinks. You know, they have these startups producing vodka from CO2 captured from the air or diamonds or shoes or I mean, you name it, right? It's like this extremely vibrant space where all of a sudden, you know, we can make everything out of thin air. That tension that exists there between permanent removal and this, the attraction of making this into something profitable, which, of course, pumping it underground permanently is not, right? It's something that you need to subsidize if it, has, if it will happen. So that's, I think, another dimension in which this becomes political, right? Because to really do farm removal within the kind of current political economic system, it's really hard to see how you would do that without any significant state's Subsidies. You basically, like they have in the US, right? They have the 45Q subsidy for uh, sequestering carbon. You know, there's no company that's going to do that without that kind of subsidy. Or you would have to count on the kind of uh, very few pioneering companies that are currently willing to pay the extravagant prices that direct air capture uh, demands.
0: One of the things that we've come across in the people that we've interviewed is this notion that. One of the kind of tricky areas in uh, removals is, and where they might come from, also is, is through the these you know the integrated assessment models or the, the modeling, mm-hmm. essentially, essentially the climate modeling. There's essentially the the so these so called residual emissions that modellers just don't know how to tackle them, yeah. and that as a result, these carbon dioxide removal technologies or removals technologies just end up being used as a kind of filler when there's actually relatively little knowledge of how they function and how they, what their impacts might be, etc. Yeah.
1: Do you think that's true? Let's put it this way. I mean, the, the thing with integrated assessment models is that they're based on economic decision making, right? So their interpretation, if you wanted, of residual emissions is basically, it's what is most economically feasible, right? And that, I think, gets at a very interesting discussion of what what do we actually mean with residual emissions? And this is one of the main problems I see in this whole net zero debate, right? Because every single company is making a, a claim on residual emissions based on their own idea of you know, what is unavoidable or what they can mitigate and what they can't. And obviously that's not done on some kind of in-depth assessment of the actual potential that exists for, you know, finding technological alternatives It's based on an economic exercise. And I think that's where fundamentally the problem is in that modelers have gone the same route, right? They've they've used that same logic to, as you say, I mean, fill their models with CDR to compensate for things that otherwise are seen as kind of too costly. But that doesn't mean that there is no alternative possibilities i mean there might be some residual emissions for which there are really no alternatives i mean and agriculture is the obvious example there's always going to be some emissions associated with agriculture probably depending on the time scale you use right i mean you could think of a i guess a cyclical agricultural system which really does balance out emissions and removals but other than that there's definitely a problem there in the way that these models are being used to justify removals on a scale that arguably, I mean, is not just infeasible. And I think if you talk to a lot of uh, you know, ecologists and um, social scientists, and I mean, uh, all of the kind of disciplines that tend to be ignored in the actual modeling exercises, you know, they tend to be much more skeptical of these kind of large scale CDRs. I mean, bex is one example, right? I mean, just the fact that you model bex on a scale that would mean, you know, two times the size of India needs to be planted with bioenergy crops shows you that, you know, there's just no environmental impact assessment kind of ID going into that exercise. It's a really big issue um, that we've ended up there with that kind of logic. Um to create this idea that we have this huge amount of residual emissions that we need to deal with. That being said, it's it's also important, I think, to recognize that in the models, you know, the CDR is not just being used for residual emissions is also being used very often to compensate for temperature overshoot, meaning that you know, the model assumes that the time by which you need to stay within a one and a half or a two degree temperature limit is 2100. It's not throughout the whole duration of the 21st century, which essentially means that you can temporarily go over one and a half degrees, as long as your your assumption of large scale CDR in, twi- in the second half of this tw- 21st century allows you to reduce that temperature again during that time. So CDR is also used in a model to compensate for that moment when you overshoot your target and then have to kind of decrease the temperature again. It's not very clear how much of it is which, right? So it's, it's how much is overshoot and how much is actual residual emissions? And what residual emission means, and that's a fundamental question here. And in the
0: end, ask a lot of questions about how the modeling itself is working then. I mean, should we have that much faith? In any of the models, if there is so little verification or looking at the complex angles in these models,
1: it's a very good question. And I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of critique of integrated assessment models at the moment, right? Mm. Um, and it's I should say it's important to distinguish the kind of climate models that are you know doing the kind of Earth system modeling, uh, which basically prove that climate change is happening, from integrated assessment models, which are basically used to create different possible mitigation pathways into the future. And those are economic models. The others are natural science models, right? And integrated assessment models are coupled together with natural science models. But but the, the core component there is the economic one. You know, there's been a massive amount of debate in the literature on this recently on like what assumptions go into the models that make them prone to choosing technologies like this on a scale that seems, you know, absurd. And we could talk a lot about these different assumptions. I think there's an increasing recognition that this is the case and an increasing frustration, I think, as well on part of some that, you know, there's still this dominance within working group three of the IPCC with, you know, these very kind of economic dominated ways of envisioning the future when there are, you know, many other ways as well, of course.
0: You mentioned the working groups in in the IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Can you say a little bit more about how the working groups are composed and how you think that might influence the positions that they end up taking?
1: You know the whole idea with the IPCC is of course that it should be policy relevant but not policy prescriptive, right? And I think the modeling community has really kind of been very successful as a as a community in speaking to some of these uh, policymakers, particularly in the European Union, where where I think you've seen very close dialogues between modelling teams and uh, the European Commission, for example, asking for you know the development of 1.5 and two degree uh, tor- um, uh, scenarios. So I think it's just it's grown like that because of I guess historical pathways in interactions between certain forms of science and policymaking. There's certainly no conspiracy going on there, but but it, it just says a lot about, you know, the kind of scientific knowledge that is being prioritized in society, right? I mean, obviously policymakers are more interested in this kind of, you know, economic cost-benefit kind of analysis rather than the kind of research that would you know, fundamentally criticize, you know, the role that vested interests have played in you know, misinformation and all of these kind of things that, you know, political scientists and, and, and sociologists and so on are uh, looking at. So that's one thing, right? And then I haven't seen the leaked version of the Working Group 3 report yet. Uh, so I can't speak to how much CDR is in there, but there's definitely, I mean, the trend has been that in the last assessment report has been very, very, dominant, um, this focus on CDR, that is the structure within which these models operate. And there's just no other way out within their structure, you know, because of this cost optimal kind of focus that you end up with these kind of solutions Um, and that they haven't, you know, integrated maybe some of the, because I know a lot of modeling teams are trying to come up with, you know, more diverse and, you know, bring in. Some of the critiques that have been expressed, and so on, and find different ways of—I mean, for example, trying to avoid overshoot—that hasn't been done in any systematic way. And, and what you then get, as you say, is that you know the the, the modelled scenarios uh, basically say one thing, and then in other parts of the IPCC uh, assessment, you have you know very elaborate kind of um, caveats or critiques of some of these pathways being expressed. So, and if you if you read the You know the report as a whole. I think that message comes across quite clearly in that you know Bex is not a silver bullet solution. But the problem is that you know what often gets uh, communicated uh, most successfully and most fiercely is these kind of you know modelled pathways, and that in itself speaks a very different message, right? There's a kind of Path dependency also in you know how these integrators how these uh, scientific assessments are being created and uh, we certainly haven't managed to I think change these practices in any fundamental way in the way that they would be needed. I mean we've seen calls for more social science and more humanities in the IPCC for a very long time and we're moving in that direction but certainly not not fully yet. And that
0: would be your answer then to these kinds of problems would be to have more social science humanities. Experts, academics involved in these processes.
1: I think that would certainly be part of it, yeah. And also, I think geographically, I think more diversification is needed there because you know we often you end up in these kind of cost optimal pathways with you know BECS being implemented in the global south because you know costs are lower there. And I mean, there's a clear justice dimension in that as well, right? So I think if you bring in more diverse voices, I think it will become much more difficult to have these really problematic pathways being so prominent. Um, so that, I think, would definitely be one, one, one part of it. I mean, the models, I think, have a role to play, but they are now the dominant way of kind of communicating You know, the kind of technologies or pathways that, that are possible. And it's not just about communication, I think. It's also about really trying to diversify that and trying to steer away from that attempt to play to what policymakers want to hear. We're just playing to, you know, kind of ideological assumptions and trying to tailor messages according to what policymakers are uh, kind of susceptible to. So I think personally that, you know, scientists, researchers also should just become more bold and dare to really yeah, express the messages that maybe policymakers don't want to hear. <laughs> Can you try to explain a little bit how that could manifest itself? I mean, one of the things that uh, an assumption that's in these models very often, for example, is that you know there's a given time frame for you know a, a given lifetime for certain technologies. Coal power plants, for example, have a certain timeline, and many of these models assume that you cannot cut that timeline short, that lifetime short. That you know you have to let them live out their natural lifetime, and then you can maybe replace them with something else. And all of these things are kind of taboos that you need to. If you really want to do something about climate change, then I think we have to fundamentally talk about, you know, moratoria on uh, new oil and gas exploration and, you know, shutting down fossil fuel plants and polluting industries before their lifetime is passed and all of these kind of things. Uh, The inconvenient messages, I think, are, I mean, reducing energy demand, right? I mean, the things that go against this kind of ingrained Neoclassical ideas of, you know, how we have to kind of manage our economy. I mean, there's plenty of examples of that. Um, Bringing in some of the kind of, yeah, I mean, reducing energy demand is actually a great one, because that's really one of the things that, obviously, there's been in uh, the one and a half degree report, there's been one scenario that looks at this, but the vast majority of these models don't take that into account. There's very little kind of uh, behavioral change, or you know, these kind of things as well. I mean, like changing diets is almost like you know impossible if you look at these models. So all of these things are, are of course, not easy to do. But it's certainly something that I think there's a responsibility by scientists to really very firmly put that on the political agenda. Carbon removal markets.
0: I've seen uh, a list which kind of shows the development of, of the removals market and you know, how many removals are being ordered by various companies um, yeah. in, in, to, in order to meet their probable net, net zero targets. What do you make of the removals market? I know it's a very broad question, but where does that fit into the kind of, you know, we've got the, the kind of government commitments on removals. What do you see is, what are your concerns about the removals market? And do, do you think there could actually be genuine removals that come from such a market
1: yeah, it's a very good question. And actually um, something I've been thinking of working a little bit more on as well. I mean, so I I definitely think some removals can come from that, but I think it's very limited. And we see examples of that, right? I mean, you have uh, Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft, all kinds of pioneering examples of companies that are investing in things like Climeworks and some other carbon removal startups where, you know, for sure, that's a way of funding. Um, but I think... There's a limit to, you know, how many of these companies are willing to pay. What is it? 900 euros per ton of carbon for, you know, making that happen. I think one of the main concerns I see there is, I mean, it's this question of permanence, as, we, as I said at, uh, in the beginning, right? It's at the moment, most of the carbon removal in these markets is not permanent. And so you need to move towards things like direct air capture or enhanced weathering to really make it permanent. Um, and at the moment, the supply of that is extremely, extremely limited. And so, there's a lot of promise of this being scaled up. And I must say, I'm a bit skeptical that the market itself is going to be able to scale that. I mean, at the moment, you see, I think there's like Climeworks. I believe is is doing things like um, having 10-year contracts with some companies, where they promise to, you know, remove CO2 over 10 years. And when you start buying. Carbon removal that is promised to be removed in 10 years from now. I mean, obviously that, that extends the risk there, right? I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that startups fail. Startups fail all the time, right? So, I mean, if we if we start having a removal market that, that kind of extends far into the future with just promised removals, while potentially some of these companies are already putting this on their books as actual removals that they have funded, it becomes both quite interesting to unpack what is going on there, but, but increasingly risky, of course, because you're betting against this actually working in the future. That might be the case, but there's also really good reasons why I think that might not be the case in the end. So I see a real risk there. My
0: thanks to Wim Carton for his time. We've also published some suggested further reading from Wim on this subject that you can find on the podcast page. And do remember that the LC website has a lot of academic reading suggestions and explainers on issues related to removals too, including an excellent three-part series exploring carbon capture and storage, the first part which has just been published. Also, please feel free to give us reviews on Apple or Spotify if you can. Thanks for listening.